Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming today. This is course SIS-03, titled Measure for Measure, Prescribing Guidelines, Rules, and Regulations. Our faculty today is Dr. Steven Ziegler, and he's an Associate Professor Emeritus of Public Policy in the Department of Public Policy at Purdue University. Go Boilermakers. And he is also a Mayday Payne and Scholar Fellow. So please help me welcome our distinguished speaker, Dr. Ziegler. Thank you. I'm a, a professor emeritus with Purdue University, and um, actually there's, Purdue University has no connection to those people who make chicken, so I oftentimes have to clarify that. So uh, I like chicken, but we're not connected in any way to that. Uh, today, um, what I'm going to speak about is uh, prescribing guidelines and offer some clarifications concerning rules and regulations with a particular focus on um, dosage thresholds. Uh, these are matters in which the states are adopting them like wildfire, and of course there are some concerns regarding those uh, particular thresholds, and I'll tell you why. There's my disclosure side slide. As far as our learning objectives, discuss the variation in prescribing guidelines and rules across the United States regarding chronic non-cancer pain. Now, of course, oftentimes these terms are used interchangeably, but we'll talk about some specifics as to rules versus guidelines. And compare the history of Washington State's prescribing rules and the CDC's prescribing guidelines, because it originally started in Washington, and discuss the potential that the prescribing guidelines could have on medical practice, the treatment of pain, and the prevention and reduction of overdose. Now, we're certainly aware of uh, this oftentimes used graph to show of a, an escalation as far as uh, unintentional overdoses have occurred over time, and that is certainly a concern uh, to all of us. And uh, one of the things that I've spoken about earlier is, is that when we're speaking about overdose, it's not all that simple. There's a lot of factors um, that are involved um, in these overdoses. It's not simply uh, prescription drugs uh, per se. For example, there's methadone, 2% uh, of all prescriptions nationally. Uh, yet they are associated with at least a third of all overdose deaths. Um, another factor in overdose certainly is unauthorized escalation of dosage. Polypharmacy, uh, particularly along the lines of um, uh, combining pain medication and benzodiazepines, um, as well as other substances, uh, people will mix alcohol, for example, and it will come up with a, a negative outcome. Drug interactions, uh, people's genetics can actually um, impact how the, the PK and uh, illicit opioids are certainly um, a driving force. A recent study in Massachusetts found that um, of all the, by the Department of Health, found that only 8.3% of all uh, overdoses in the study um, had a prescription. So the, uh, the majority of overdoses that were occurring in that particular study was stemming from illicit fentanyl and and heroin, of course, are opioids. Uh, the role of depression, uh, Dr. Cheadle is actually going to be speaking uh, later this week about the role of depression and pain and suicide. So some of these um, unintentional overdoses, deaths, may actually have been intentional. And then when we talk about dosage levels, there's gonna be a significant theme here as well, is the question is, is there a linear relationship between dosage, dosage levels and overdose? And we'll see that that's not exactly um, as precise as we thought it uh, perhaps is. 
Now, of course, what's going on right now is we're seeing um, an awful lot of hysteria, perhaps, associated with the opioid crisis um, and the concern about um, in overdoses and, and deaths and injury. So what is happening is, is that these policymakers, um, these elected officials, for example, the regulators, um, they are under enormous pressure to do something. And um, there's a favorite quote of mine um, from decades ago, if not a century ago, that I'll share with you. It comes from um, Oliver Holmes, a Supreme Court justice, in an, I think it was a 1904 case. He writes, great cases like hard cases make bad law. For great cases are called great, not by reason of their real importance in shaping the law of the future, and but because of some accident of immediate overwhelming interest which appeals to the feelings and distorts the judgment. It's very much, we've had some very checkered history in the United States over the decades about this idea about overwhelming interest, and it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. So we're certainly in that situation as well. These immediate interests exercise a kind of hydraulic pressure which makes what was previously clear seem doubtful, and by which even well-settled principles of law will bend. Of course, the emphasis was added there. So what is this, this, this pressure to do something? Well, that's something that they want to do, that these politicians and policymakers and regulators want to do, is create prescription guidelines, rules, and regulations. They have to do something. Now, do these terms get mixed up when we talk about guidelines, rules, and regulations? Yes, they do. Um, at the basis, when we talk about guideline, is oftentimes associated with the term voluntary guideline. These are recommendations. Because when we talk about a prescribing guidelines, so to speak, they were originally thought, uh, their original purpose, of course, was to, you can use along with your education and your training to be able to provide you with some insight. So those were guidelines. That versus is in contrast to a mandatory rule. Now, of course, when dealing with law and policy is that it really matters what actual language is being used. If you hear, you may do something, that's quite different than you shall do something. Because when we talk about shall, then we're talking mandatory. Now, of course, as I mentioned about the original purpose of the guidelines, but they've been now expanded to in which regulators are, this is not merely just a clinical issue, but rather it's one for regulators, it's one for insurance industries, and as well as this concern that could possibly we be talking about that these guidelines are becoming standards. Um, and that sounds an awful lot like being mandatory. So the Washington State, I, I got this from the Washington State Department of Health. Um, I'm originally from Washington. That's where I get my PhD, so I have a certain love for the state. But um, that means also that I can criticize them as well. But nevertheless, the Washington State Department of Health has these, this is on their website, they specifically address the idea of guidelines, a set of recommended practices designed by the Medical Commission to assist practitioners, assist about appropriate health care for specific circumstances. A guideline does not have the force of law. Well, this all sounds good and consistent, and then all of a sudden they take a turn. But it may be considered by the Medical Commission to be the standard of care in our state. Now, I've emphasized this. This was not in the, in the original about the underlying. But it seems like they start out with this idea, like many do, is that this is a recommendation to help you. But then all of a sudden, they take a quick turn and says, oh, by the way, we might be using this as a standard of care. 
Now, in fact, when I talk about the difference between guideline is voluntary oftentimes and rule is mandatory, well, here we have the Washington State Guideline, but it's mandatory. So um, it can certainly at times cause some confusion and perhaps mixing of the language. Now, when we talk about rules and regulations, that is actually very much different than a particular guideline when we talk about a recommended guideline. Now, as we know, Congress and state legislatures, what they do is they create laws. And they really don't understand the details of those laws, which is quite frightening. And sometimes they don't even actually read the bill itself. So what they do is that they leave it to a regulatory agency to be able to provide the clothing. Is that we provide you with the skeleton, says the state uh, lawmakers, and the agencies have to be able to essentially clothe um, the, the, the law through the use of regulations. Now, why this is helpful for you is that you can become a, a role in these regulations because they have this open comment period. There, they provide notice that said, we're interested in getting your feedback. You can make oral testimony. You can write testimony to us, etc. We will put that in the record because you are playing a role in your own regulation. So it's really important to become involved in that. And so after they go and um, hear this testimony, they'll eventually uh, propose rules and have people comment on them. And then ultimately, when they are established, they carry the force and effect of law. So oftentimes when we think of regulatory agencies, they're essentially like making law, so to speak. It's in a narrow sense, but it has the same force and effect of that law. Now, when we talk about specifically about regulations, like a code, they are assigned a number. In Washington State, they're published and codified, which means they're assigned an administrative law chapter and section. And in Washington, it's the Washington Administrative Code. And many states have similar ways of going about doing this, uh, although they, they could differ in some ways, but it's uh, generally the same. And here's an example of what actually a, um, a regulation will look like. Um, so if you're interested in finding out, if you're uh, practicing in Washington State and interested in knowing what the rules are, um, then you can click on a particular link and read the actual language itself. Now, what is common, certainly, in many guidelines or rules, um, seeing they're different, um, across the United States is oftentimes a patient evaluation, tr having treatment agreements, doing follow-ups, checking the prescription drug monitoring program. Many states have these. They're pretty much oftentimes universal. But what is different, though, um, and which is a significant theme of this talk, is this idea that the states are using dosage thresholds. Um, and that certainly has a concern. They are expanding across the United States, and what they rely on is morphine equivalency and a morphine equivalent dose. And the problem with that is uh, Jeff Fudin, a colleague of mine, is of the opinion that morphine is only can be converted to morphine. Morphine is morphine. Anything else is a whole different chapter. And so he um, has published extensively about uh, the myth of the MED and some of its dangers associated with that. Now, of course, originally the great state of Washington is where these all of this, I think, originated from. It started in Washington and had its own interesting history. Is that because what happened was, is that... Um, Individuals in the state were recognizing that there was a concern about overdose, 
and pain management. And so they came up with this idea that let's have some um, voluntary guidelines and, um, and spread the word. And um, apparently it was not well received. And so the next step was, okay, well then let's make it a mandatory uh, CME for healthcare providers in the state. Okay, education sounds good, um, but healthcare uh, providers uh, pushed back on that. And so then they ultimately said, all right, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll make a rule out of this uh, that when you essentially reach a particular dosage threshold um, in a, a per day, that is going to trigger the need for a pain consultation. So it started out certainly as an educational pilot. They established a, um, a trigger of 120 milligrams morphine equivalent dose per day um, as to when that is uh, going to take effect. It was originally as indicated a, a guideline. Now, the question that you might have is, well, where did this 120 come from? Did they flip a coin and say that sounds like a good number? Well, um, King published a work in 2014, a systematic review of, of studies concerning overdose. And um, it was really uh, well done, I think. And he, cite, he states that there does not seem to be evidence-based threshold for what constitutes a dangerously high dose. Although some clin clinical guidelines suggest an MED of 200 MED per day as a watchful dose, studies in our sample showed overdose and mortality increases at doses ranging from 40 to 200. And oftentimes, even the proponents of the dosage threshold model um, recognize that most overdoses occur at relatively low doses. Now, Descuta, who is an um, epidemiologist by training, um, has published some work um, as well and has stated that ecologic studies suggest a near-linear association between the total amount of opioids dispensed in OD, M&M. So the thought is, is that it's almost, that some of these studies are indicating, well, it's a straight line. The, the higher you go, the more likely. But he, he says, however, but there is new evidence that the shape of the curve is not linear. Unlike previous studies, there was no meaningful inflection of the incident rate at 100 milligrams per day average MME. And in fact, he goes on to state that higher doses of opioid analgesics were associated with increased overdose risk. However, there were smaller incremental increases in risk above 200 MED. Much of the risk at higher doses appears to be associated with co-prescription of benzos. So the devil is in the details, and there's a lot of complexity associated with this. So this idea simply is that it's dosage, dosage, dosage. It's a little bit more complex than that. So what has happened was is that what originally started in Washington State has now spread like wildfire across the United States. And this idea of these dosage thresholds as a key thing in these prescribing guidelines. And one would say, well, how do you actually implement this idea of these dosage thresholds? Well, the first thing is kind of like an algorithm is that, number one, are you dealing with a chronic pain patient uh, who is non-cancer? Some states say non-cancer. Others make it apply to all. And I'll, uh, I'll elaborate that on the moment. So you then um, add up all the dosage for the day that they've been prescribed. And if necessary, if they're not all on morphine, is you have to determine the morphine equivalency. 
And then it, once you've determined that morphine equivalency using a calculator, uh, we'll talk about that, is that the question then becomes, has this dosage threshold met, been met? And if it does, then you follow the rules or consider the guidelines. Now, I'm here to tell you is that oftentimes, well, many practitioners are risk-averse. And so guess what happens is that the state says that at 120 MED, you're going to have to do something. What's the likelihood that folks are not even going to get close to 120? That's one thing. Um, the other concern is, is that it also sends this false sense of security that why wait to 120? You know, there are dangers associated, perhaps, with unintentional overdose before you get to 120. So there's a lot of data that indicates that, certainly. Now, here I created this map. It's, the color scheme uh, turned out ever so slightly what exactly I wanted, but um, I'll elaborate on this. Um, there's red, blue, and, and white. Um, the red is essentially our rules. This is a sampling of about uh, 12 different states. Um, these things change constantly. After I presented this slide deck, um, things continue to change, particularly in Maine, and I'll talk about that. But we have this huge variation across the United States. Some of them are considered to be rules. Others are considered to be guidelines, which are uh, voluntary. And they all have different, uh, many of them have different dosage uh, levels. For example, I'm going to highlight a few. On the far left over here is the CDC um, guideline. Now, they, of course, have no enforcement authority whatsoever. Um, you know, you may have heard people say, well, so-and-so is violating the CDC guideline. Well, that kind of implies that the CDC is going to arrest you or charge you with something. Certainly not. It is merely an advisory uh, guideline. Now, um, and so that's why I treated it with a different color uh, there. But as far as the CDC concerned, uh, many, of these, many of these, as well as states, many of them require referral, a consult, or documentation once a threshold is made, is met. So I'm going to be able to highlight some of those things. For example, with the CDC, it's a voluntary guideline, um, and their levels are at 50 and 90, uh, reassess risk and benefits at 50 MED or higher, and avoid going over 90 MED or at least carefully justify your decision to titrate above that level. Washington State is, they are a rule at 120 or above. You need a consult unless you're exempted from the rules. Uh, one exemption example is if you're at 120 or above and the physician documents the pain and function is stable and the patient is on a non-escalating dose. So once again, when we're dealing with rules and Regulations, the devil is in the details. Minnesota, I also want to talk about. That is a rule. And, but its, its uh, impact is, at the moment is only on the Medicaid population. And um, if you are treating someone who's on Medicaid in Minnesota and they are at 120 or above, even if they're terminally ill, you have to get preauthorization. It's kind of scary. So what I did is I, uh, I played doctor for a moment, and uh, I called the folks uh, for pre-authorization. And what I really wanted to know is I, once I found that number, I would be able to ask them, okay, I need some data. Can you help me with the data? So I um, dialed the pre-authorization number to see how long it would take to somebody answer the phone. I hung up after 35 minutes. That's, that's not access. So... Um, then there's Colorado. Uh, I do have some, I'm, I'm not completely negative. Some of these things are not so bad. In Colorado, they have a guideline, a voluntary guideline, and I'm going to read 
uh, some of their own language that's been accepted here. It is above 120, so that's when the guideline kicks in. And they state, we want to ensure that the board's message, the medical board's message, with this policy is clear. The policy does not draw any line, but rather seeks to educate the practitioner. The policy does not suggest the discontinuation of opioid therapy after a threshold is crossed. It does recommend the practitioner closely monitor the pain to detect contraindications such as decreased function or quality of life. Also, by issuing these bright line thresholds in policy rather than board rule and regulation, the boards acknowledge the importance of clinical judgment in the treatment of pain. This seems to be more of a balanced approach. The boards are committed to evaluate the effectiveness and usefulness of the policy, including responding to any unintended consequences it may create. That's really good, because a lot, awful lot of what government does is that they come up with these policy decisions and these ideas, which is good, but they often rarely ever evaluate them to see how efficient, how effective they are, and perhaps how some unintended consequences could occur. So Colorado is sensitive to this. Continued co collaboration will help to identify and evaluate the outcomes of this policy. Likewise, we welcome continued feedback from all members of the public. That's, that's really good. I think that's very positive. Now, just as a further example with New Hampshire, they're at, they are a rule, they're at 100 MED, but they merely say, document the consideration of a consultation when the patient reaches 100 MED longer than 90 days. Now, the main rule, uh, when I talk about main, it's M-A-I-N-E. Um, this is controversial as well. Up until recently, they, it, I'll tell you about the change here in a moment. As of July 1st of this year, Maine was implementing a 100 milligram MED ceiling. New and existing prescriptions for opioid medications are limited to 100 MEDs per day per patient. Exemptions requiring diagnostic and exemption code, however, exist, particularly as it relates to palliative care in conjunction with a serious illness or injury. For example, like end of life or hospice care. Now, how many people would have been impacted chronic non-cancer pain in Maine that you've got to taper down to 100? Over 16,000. 16,000 people in Maine. So I went to the Maine Medical Association website to their Q&A. And the question was from a practitioner, different MED calculators give different answers. Which one is the appropriate one to use? Their response, unfortunately, there is not a calculator that would allow a prescriber to determine what dosage of an intended prescription would stay under the maximum limits of 100. The prescription monitoring program coordinator advises using the CDC calculator for that purpose. I will be highlighting a story about the CDC mobile app calculator in a moment. But there's good news. There's been a recent clarification of the rule by the legislature in an emergency provision before it took effect July 1st. What they essentially did was is that people were under the impression that the exemption 
could exist if the person was in palliative care. And many were thinking, mistakenly, that palliative care concerns only those at end of life. So what the legislature did is passed a clarification of what they meant, and it replaced the original bill. And it states that it changes the definition of palliative care to clarify that palliative care does not always include a requirement for hospice care. And it includes chronic, unremitting, or intractable pain. Well, the problem with that is, the criticism of that is, is that you're essentially, you've created this rule, and then you're pretty much exempting everybody else from that rule. So it's so much that the exception that they've now created essentially swallows the overarching rule. All right. All right. And from Indiana, uh, which is where I'm from, I uh, actually did testify at the medical board in opposition uh, to the rule. Um, they thanked me. Um, but it rule remained ultimately um, how they wanted. But you've got to start somewhere. Their rule is, I think, one of the more complex, which is one of the things that I testified about, is that, number one, they say any, it applies to any opioid uh, extended release that is not in ADF form if an ADF abuse deterrent formulation is available. That's part one of the rule. It also is, you are under the rule, is if prescribing the following for three months or longer in duration, transdermal opioid patch at any dosage level, Tramadol, greater than 60 milligrams MED per day. Any opioid substance greater than 60 pills per month or greater than 15 milligrams MED. Yes, I'm getting a headache just thinking about that. So if any thresholds are, made, are met by these many thresholds, triggers, it triggers a variety of actions. Okay. Now, um, one of the challenges, of course, is that we have these, all these different versions of dosage thresholds and policies across the United States. In one way, states are considered to be laboratories, as they experiment with new policies to find out about new things that they can innovate and solve solutions with. But unfortunately, at times, though, is that sometimes we think that, well, if we're in a lab, does that mean that we're experimenting? And are we experimenting on people in pain? So why is it that we have different MEDs across the United States, as I've indicated? It almost seems at times that it could be a race to the bottom. Now, we also know that the calculation and conversion process that has to occur to comply with these dosage thresholds is problematic because something gets lost in translation. In fact, Washington State put on their own website about that calculator because you have to calculate to be able to see if you are needed to be in compliance with these rules, and they provide this caution. This calculator should not be used to determine doses when converting a patient from one opioid to another. This is especially important for fentanyl and methadone conversions. Equal analgesic dose ratios are only approximations and do not account for genetic factors, incomplete cross-tolerance, and pharmacokinetics. But that's Washington State. Now, I want to talk to you about MED and the CDC and their CDC app, which, of course, appears on their website. CDC gives me a, little, a lot of great material. Okay, on, you go to the CDC website, and it says Guideline Resources, the CDC Opioid Guideline Mobile App, as if we, we've got another app to put on our phone. CDC's new Opioid Guideline app is designed to help providers apply the recommendations, not 
commands of CDC's guideline for prescribing opioids for chronic pain in a clinical practice by putting the entire guideline, tools, and resources in the palm of their hands. Managing chronic pain is complex, but accessing prescribing guidance has never been easier. This is really what they've said. Okay, so the application includes a morphine milligram equivalent, summaries of key recommendations, and a link to the full guideline and an interactive motivational interviewing feature to help providers practice effective communication skills and prescribe with confidence. Prescribe with confidence, emphasis. So, in fact, they have this little iPhone, and they say CDC opioid guideline prescribe with confidence. Well, they herald it, this wonderful um, thing, but in the small print, they've got this disclaimer. Important. This calculator is not intended to replace clinical judgment or to guide opioid dosing for patients receiving active cancer treatment, palliative care, end of life, or for patients younger than 18. The application is not intended to provide guidance on dosing of opioids as part of medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder. The calculator does not account for incomplete cross-tolerance between opioids and should not be used to guide opioid rotation or conversion between different opioids. Wait, wait, there's more. This is especially important for fentanyl and methadone conversions. Equal analgesic dose ratios or approximations and do not account for interactions between opioids and other drugs, patient weight, renal insufficiency, genetic factors, or other factors affecting pharmacokinetics. Well, their disclaimer is well said, but it's almost like we're getting mixed messages, is that prescribing has never been easier, but we've got this huge disclaimer that we've, also, uh, we've got to give you. So in light of that, it appears that we now have the three biggest lies. One is the checks in the mail. Number two, listen carefully, our menu has changed. And number three, prescribe with confidence. Now, I, I do make light of this. And prescribing, of course, is a very serious thing. But I, can, I try to put myself, my shoes in the, in, in the shoes of practitioners about all this information you're receiving and this this. This information that tells you to do one thing and then tells you to do something else. So I, I can, I'm sensitive to that. And this idea of, of the CDC guideline was a good idea. I've, I talked about this last year. Um, but the way that it came about, um, the process that was used, I think, um, impacted it uh, negatively. And, of course, the CDC app provides that particular disclaimer there. Now... Since so many of the states are focusing on dosage thresholds, um, this creates a concern, particularly as it relates to MED. The CDC even recognizes, the Department of Health at Washington recognizes some of the problems associated with making these calculations and these conversions. Now, having said that, dosage is an important consideration. Um, of course, why should you wait to 120 to be thinking about things is certainly something um, to think about. But we also know that there are multiple contributors to overdose, and association is not causation. Deskuta had talked about how this, it may not be a, a linear relationship between dosage. So the concern is, is that we need to be concerned about dosage, yes, but we also need to be concerned about other things, too. Even Dunn, um, D-U-N-N, um, and, and his colleagues in often cited articles about overdose, has admitted, uh, has, has clarified that most ODs occurred in patients receiving low to moderate dose regimens. 
And uh, Webster and Fine note that when dealing with conversion tables, it could result in under- and overdosing. An increasing body of literature suggests that widely used opioid rotation practices, including the use of dose conversion ratios found in equal analgesic tables, may be an important contributor to the increasing incidence of opioid-related fatalities. So it's, I, I published a work in pain medicine back in 2015 raising concerns um, about these, uh, the use of dosage thresholds um, by the states um, because of these particular concerns. They could actually, the state is intending to do well. It's not, they're not wanting to do evil things, but, um, but it can create its own dangers, certainly. Now, in fact, um, one interesting thing about um, Washington State is that when these dosage thresholds um, were first emerging in the state and people were emphasizing, some people were emphasizing how valuable they are, is that one particular advocate said it's, it's about dosage, dosage, dosage. But it's not, because one of the concerns was the use of methadone. It's the state of Washington, in its interest to save money, uh, put methadone on the formulary. And as a result, overdose problem, particularly with your Medicaid population. Now, um, the, so the Seattle Times did an expose about the fatalities that were occurring across the state and its link with methadone and the concern about its placement on the formulary. And all of a sudden the state, well, eventually the state said, okay, well, maybe we need to look at this methadone thing. The point being is dosage is important, but other things are important as well. So another concern here, though, is, is that, you know, when I spoke earlier about how people want to avoid the 120 and getting close to the rule, well, this is happening across the United States, actually. People are opting out um, of pain management. And in fact, what they've done, had to do here, it's not that clear on my screen, is that They've actually had to say, by the way, at the request of several organizations, this is a memo from the regulatory authority in Washington State, at the request of several organizations in Washington, we are restating points around the chronic non-cancer pain rules, effective 2012. It is our sincere hope that this clarification will promote understanding among the practitioner community and encourage more acceptances of patients dealing with chronic non-cancer pain. A lot of folks were not taking chronic non-cancer pain patients. It is our further hope that this clarification will encourage more practitioners outside the realm of pain management specialists to accept the patients into their practice in good faith and deliver competent care, including pain care, that we know they are qualified to provide. The pain rules are not intended to force practitioners who are not pain management specialists away from treating non-cancer pain. But they are finding that that certainly was the case. You make it so complicated, you threaten people, or people become so concerned about regulatory scrutiny that they say, why am I doing this? And that's an impact that a law, a well-intended law, here a regulation, has had on the treatment of pain in the state of Washington. So what you're ap ending up having is you have opioid uh, refugees. Despite the fact that many people have functioned well over the years, um, they are finding the difficulty of finding somebody that's going to be able to prescribe for them. In fact, I spoke earlier, up until Maine changed the rule at the last minute, uh, Maine was going to say everybody's got to be at 100 MED, period, without consent of the patient. That's quite frightening, Just even though they've functioned well. Well, eventually, though, is the state did uh, fix that problem. 
Uh, one of the challenges, of course, is that we recognize there are limited alternatives that are effective and reimbursable uh, for treating chronic non-cancer pain. And one of the challenges is that a recent survey indicated only 12% of medical boards have an action plan of what we're going to do when we have nobody that's going to take these chronic pain patients. Only 12% had an action plan. So here they're essentially, in a way, their good intention was to improve patient care, but at the same time, though, they're driving away practitioners, and um, only 12% of states essentially have a plan on what they're going to do about that. So what does the future hold? Well, ultimately what we want is balance. We want to be able to prevent abuse, but at the same time we want to be able to ensure access. And right now the pendulum is kind of swing the other way. We see a bunch of states are essentially experimenting and sometimes experimenting with people's lives. Now, um, I had, one time I spoke with this official in Washington, D.C. who was involved in... Um, was involved in state policy across the United States in, 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 in regards to health care. And this person told me that one of the reasons why the states are adopting these dosage thresholds is because they're easy. Just come up with a number. And um, that's, that's a little bit frightening as well. So, but the positive thing does exist out there. And for that is, for example, Colorado. We have, I read to you the comments, positive comments of Colorado recognizing that we're going to make this a recommendation, we're not going to make it a rule, and we're going to be um, sensitive to the problems that this may create, and we'll work about uh, making this a better place. That's very positive. Other positive al alternatives to dosage thresholds, of course, is New Mexico uh, rejected this idea of dosage thresholds. Instead, they have a mandatory CME, but a mandatory CME that not only talks about how to reduce abuse and prevent abuse, but it also, a central component, is about treating pain giving skills to be able to how can we treat and how can we prevent. So that's another uh, great project that New Mexico um, has, has worked on. And if certainly there's Project Lazarus um, that uh, involves communities about how to reduce abuse as well as um, treat pain. Um, and I'm going to speak about this um, in, uh, to, uh, in the keynote uh, tomorrow. And, but um, another positive thing is the Comprehensive Abuse and Recovery Act of 2016. And um, it's really a great um, idea, um, some of the legislation um, as far as particularly Section 101, and I'll talk to more about that. So anyway, become part of the solution, advocate for balanced policies, for reimbursement, and uh, play a role in not only helping yourself, but helping your patients as well. Thank you very much. Do we have any questions? I was that brilliant. Very good, yes. Uh, next talk is uh, tomorrow. It's the keynote um, at um, 5.45. And um, Dr. Kevin Zakharoff and Dr. Mike Shatman will be joining me for that event. Yes, ma'am. I am from Washington State, and I work in pain management, and I'm the person that all the primary cares send all their patients to when they've got a 120, a 100 MED. 
My question is, I'm getting patients who have 500 MEDs, who have 600 MEDs because of the new legislation. I don't know what to do with these people. Okay. Any suggestions? Uh, well, well, one suggestion that I can make is that um, there have been reports, certainly, of people not being able to um, take on patients. They're not going to, so they give them to a specialist. And one of the concerns is, is that Washington State came up with this idea is that, hey, once they reach 120 milligrams, morphine equivalent dose per day, well, then you need to consult with a, with a specialist. Uh, but the problem is, is there are very few specialists, and they're overloaded as it is. I mean, there's what, an estimate of about 3,000 pain specialists across the United States, and we have over 100 million Americans that are chronic long-term pain. So that's problematic. The idea was good, but the actual implementation is, is problematic. So what I did tell a, um, a, a patient um, is that when they're either turned away from their prescriber um, or they have trouble being able to get access is to contact the state agency. You know, unfortunately, um, only 12% of the states have an action plan on what to do with that, and I do not know if Washington did But this is a very effective feedback to let the regulators know that this is not working. Now, as a scientist, I like uh, empirical data. Um, so what good is it going to do when you give an anecdotal, uh, when you tell a personal story to regulators or politicians? A lot. It's because politicians, regulators, they don't necessarily grasp empirical data, but they'll grasp a particular compelling story. And so a narrative is very important. So they need to hear those stories. And again, you know, the state, it, they intended to do well. 